Hello and welcome to the Long Range Sensors, the show where we talk about growing up with Star Trek in England and pick an episode from the final frontier to reflect on. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Beam aboard and join the crew to get access to exclusive benefits over at patreon.com forward slash long range sensors. And on that note, we also want to give a warm welcome to Jennifer, our latest addition to the crew, who has joined the ranks as one of our founding member patrons. Thank you so much for your support on Patreon and for sharing the love on Twitter. My name is Trev and I'm based in London, England. And joining me from Atlantic Canada is a man who always knows how many photon torpedoes are in his inventory. It's Alistair. Hello. Hey, Al, how are you doing? I'm doing well. There are precisely zero photon torpedoes in my inventory right now. Yeah. It's not invented yet. <laughs> no. Makes that difficult. Yeah, we don't have to worry about replenishing them as much as no, perhaps certain no. crews do. And, and, and the thing is, where, where would I store them? Uh, when we're talking my, like my inventory, are we talking kind of like, you know, in my house, like just in the spare room, or, or are we talking pockets? You know, kind of like a video game character, you have your inventory where you can carry an inordinate amount of, uh, of equipment. Or like the Elder Scrolls games when you're holding 30 books and 50 swords and like armor yeah. and yeah, a giant, you know. Well, in, in fact, I was watching a video recently of um, where somebody has broken down all the equipment that you can carry in Grand Theft Auto V, from weapons, food, uh, ammo, and I can't remember the exact weight. It's, it's, it's several tons. It's basically a, a giant lorry or like the equivalent of yeah. a giant elephant just in your pockets or on your back. It's, it's yeah. a similar thing in... Uh... Um, with Optimus Prime, and where does his trailer go when he's a, when he's a robot? Um, <laughs> yeah. Because it just kind of disappears. Uh, there's that they do kind of uh, put it into canon in the comics and say there's like um, there's an extra dimension that they can access at will that they can store their sort of Transformers fans like myself call this stuff kibble. The extra bits that kind of you know hang off Transformers, <laughs> you can take off and just kind of annoying and don't really fit anywhere. They can kind of have an extra dimension and they can kind of store this in almost like a phantom zone to themselves. So yeah, so that's oh. kind of the the excuse that they give for that, which is kind of poor. But um, I, yeah, I do carry that around. I do love how they did it in Star Trek Voyager Elite Force, the video game, where you're carrying a portable photon torpedo launcher and yeah. a bunch of other equipment but they have a transporter buffer that's kind of in the belt buckle so yeah whether it feels too advanced for voyager at that point in all honesty but i do like the idea that they kind of acknowledge that you can't carry all this stuff so we'll, we'll just have it in a transporter buffer and it's just yeah there's kind of a, it's just a particle it's just information it's allowances that they're about to make because it's a video game and so it has to do kind of video game stuff doesn't it like carrying an order <laughs> an amounts of of stuff um yeah yeah portable photon torpedo launcher I mean, if that went off in your pants that is gonna be that'll hurt that'll hurt in the morning i think big time you know but you can like um you can you can you could scale up and down the yield and anyway we're getting we're getting crazy now i mean we're gonna this is the ideal show to talk about this sort of stuff isn't it and, mm. and on that note we kind of are gonna dive into photon torpedoes a little bit because there's been a number of episodes we've discussed um, where we've been faced with a number of plot holes or a lack of canon information. 
Um, so we thought it would be fun to introduce like a, a new segment to the show where we'll be looking at those plot holes in Star Trek and seeing if we can come up with a suitable explanation from, you know, what we've we've mentioned it before in other episodes, our own head canon air quotes there. Yeah, will we help make the universe make more sense? Or is it best just to remember these plot holes the way Janeway remembers Tuvix by pretending they never existed in the first place? Let's find out. <laughs> that's a really a good. Don't go with down the Tuvix route. That's that's a whole like episode debate. We can we, we can get going there. Um, but yeah, for our first full foray into our head cannon, um, I thought we could start with something simple and look at uh, USS Voyager's ability to magically replenish all of its torpedoes. Yeah, I, I think a, a really good starting point, really, is how many torpedoes Voyager originally had. Yeah. Because the number, it varies depending on how you look at it. And that's one of the things which I think we should actually look at, really. Uh, because I think as well, um, there wasn't actually a Voyager technical manual. There was a Next Gen, there was a Deep Space Nine one. But they didn't make a Voyager technical manual, so it's not so easy to go and reference these specific details, is it? No, there, there was a manual that was written for the writers. Yes. Um, it was really just a book where it's like, you know, they pushed this button to do this kind of thing. Yeah. And that yeah. stated a few bits and bobs. going, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, think, I think there's been some after the show's been made. But there certainly wasn't yeah. anything during its run, like in the same way that we had with the Next Generation Technical Manual, which we, we bring up many times. It was planned. Mm. Yeah, we do, because it's awesome. Um, but, um, <laughs> Deep Space Nine um, got one, uh, I think, um, late in the series run. Um, yes. And in like 2000, I think, or something. Might it's have been just really expensive finished. as well. Like is, the Next yeah. Generation one, you can pick up on eBay really cheaply, but the Deep Space Nine one is a lot rarer, and it still goes for quite a lot. I don't think um, I, I, I don't think they sort of printed as, as as many copies as they did the next gen one, um, mm. and I mean Deep Space Nine is a bit more niche. Uh, I'm sorry to say than the other than certainly Next Generation, <laughs> and I know tons of people that aren't Trek fans that will happily watch an episode of Next Generation, but they you know they won't know what what might be interested in watching Deep Space Nine, which is understandable. But it's also a different kind of show. But from what I've read, um, actually a lot of this, you know, from on uh, Memory Alpha, they they made the DS9 technical manual, and uh, I think it it just basically didn't sell particularly well. So mm. it ended up with a, a situation where they're like, well, we we kind of do want to make a Voyager one. So because um, the sales of the Deep, Deep Space Nine one, they basically decided, you know, they didn't want to make a Voyager one in in the end, which is a shame. Um, I'm hoping they'll still, you know, release one of that same sort of technical manual line that we got with uh, Deep Space Nine and Voyager. But yeah, as, as a result, a lot of this stuff is from having to watch the show, isn't it? They're quite literally yeah. fans recording this. Yeah, and in episode six, which was The Cloud, uh, Chakotay has a line saying that they have a complement of 38 torpedoes, uh, 38 photon torpedoes specifically, at their disposal. And Jane Janeway yeah. also makes the point that there's no way to replace them after they've gone. Now... Right. It, so they either had 38 torpedoes or they had 40 because they did fire two, um, two weapons at the Caretaker's Array in the pilot episode. Yes. Uh, but those were two tricobalt devices that they fired. Yeah, would they establish anywhere else a tricobalt device? They were, yeah. So the mine 
in Enterprise, in uh, in the Enterprise episode Minefield, where it latches onto the the hull of the ship. Uh, we talked about the episode following that dead stop, where they're yes. repairing the damage. But that was a Romulan tricobalt mine. They're kind of designed to help with like demolition tasks, almost, aren't, aren't they? They're not necessarily, and also for like you know, they can be used as weapons, but they kind of their yield is like higher than a photon torpedo or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's also able to rupture subspace, so they measure, um, like, like we would measure a blast from an explosive in terms of kilotons, they, they will do it in number of Cochrane's that it will yes. it'll cause, because it, it can rupture subspace. Photon torpedoes can't, is one yes. of the big differences. Now, they describe them as two tricobalt devices that they were launching at the array, and, <laughs> you know, if you're going to fire something, that sounds like probably the best one to make sure that you do the job. Uh, on didn't the want, no, she didn't want that thing to survive. In it, no, in no. So yeah. definitely the right one. But there's nothing to say whether those were attached to the torpedoes. Like, are, are we talking like it's a photon torpedo that's just had one of these devices attached to the front of it? Or is yeah. this a completely separate thing? And that's where there's a little bit of conflict. So... Um, some people say, well, they always had 38. Some people will say that they had 40, but it depends how you define the tricobalt devices that they used and fired. Yeah, and you can almost, I mean, what, why do they even have tricobalt devices? I mean, the mission, I mean, I can understand why it would have photon, tor photon torpedoes like a standard thing that all starships have. Mm. But a tricobalt device seems to be for a specific task. And uh, the mission of Voyager in that first episode was just to go into the Badlands and find Chakotay. Um, and that's it. So I don't know yeah, why all better take some tricobalt devices for that. <laughs> well, yeah. it was a science vessel, and so I don't know if there was some some reason for that. Because you got to think that that would have been a Voyager has is brand new, but we need to just hurry up the launch because we need to go fetch these McKee members. So I think the stuff that it was equipped with wasn't necessarily just for that task. It was more kind of like we're on this task, which is a deviation from whatever we're planning. So. It does kind of beg the question: What, 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 what were they, they looking at, uh, at doing with Voyager? Had they not been sent into the Bedlands? They're just going to blow Chakotay yeah. up with a tricobalt device when they found him. <laughs> yeah. I suppose the other thing is with the impending danger from the Dominion. Maybe they were experimenting more with tricobalt devices. Yeah, potentially. In yeah. terms of for, for defense for the Dominion War. You know, having a science vessel doing it would make a bit more sense for it. Yeah, and um, uh, Voyager started sort of midway through Deep Space Nine's third season, or sort of a third into Deep Space Nine's third season. Yeah. Um, so you know, we'd already seen the Defiant, so we know that they do, you know, take have, have made measures to defend themselves beyond what a normal starship would do up until that point. So yeah, that's a, that's actually a good well, point. A good way yeah, of looking at it. I, I think the. The other thing as well is that the Borg threat was pretty big. I mean, we had the Defiant as a ship designed to defeat the Borg. So maybe it wasn't so much the looming threat of the Dominion, but probably more so the Borg. Maybe they were kind of yeah. trying to experiment if there was something there that they could use. Possibly, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's just, you know, what we're sort of saying is there's sort of extra defensive options that have mm. been applied to starships, you know, uh, Voyager being a... I don't know what the history of Voyager was up until that first episode. I don't know if it was actually a brand. I think, oh, I think 
it suggested that it's a brand new show. Although, actually, there's that one episode, isn't there, where Seven of Nine, she gets moved for different periods of time, and there's one of those periods is just as Janeway actually takes command of Voyager um, mm. shortly before where we pick up the uh, where Caretaker picks up. It, it, I think it is a new ship, isn't it? So it probably would have those extra things added in that have come in to, you know, become standard, yeah. Yeah. So with these torpedoes, as we've sort of alluded to, they they magically replenish. They do end up running out. They go way over the the 38 or 40, however you look at it. And there's a really good video that we're going to link to in the show notes uh, on YouTube by a guy called Taz G2000 called the Definitive Voyager Torpedo Inventory Log. And he basically just has like, here's the total number of torpedoes that we've got, starting at 38. And he shows every single time a torpedo is fired and has the number go down. And then it goes into negative numbers and just keeps on going. But Significant <laughs> amount of negative. <laughs> it is. The, the number ends, so for those who may not see it, the final torpedo complement at the end of the series, according to that video, is minus 85. So wow. th- that's 123 torpedoes that have been used. Other sources have provided a more conservative number of at least 93. Um, I think that's because there were modifications made to torpedoes, especially with the, the partnership with the Borg in Scorpion. Yeah, yeah. So, so at least 93 of, uh, <laughs> you know, of a complement of 38. So we do end up with, with more of them. They're Type 6 photon torpedoes, which from looking around were brand new at the time of Voyager's launch. And that's not to be confused with Mark 6, because the original series movies seem to go by Mark, and then it becomes yeah. Type. I think things are used interchangeably. So this could be, I don't know, this could even be like a Mark 14. And then just oh, I'm the not Type sure in the original series. In, yeah, and in the original movies and series, I don't really, I don't think they, apart from what you see on Spock's photon torpedo in like Star Trek Three, yeah. I don't think they really explain what the, you know or, or try and talk about the different types of torpedoes at any point. So that's yeah. real headcanon, sort of, you know, us trying to fill in the gaps there. But yeah, um, yeah, we do something hear about types later on. Yeah, I kind of feel that what makes most sense for me is that the mark is how many, like, is the the kind of generational type. Yeah, and the yeah. type number is like a revision number. So it's like having yes. a software where you've got the mark is version, say, version 3, and then the type is like the point number. So it could be like mark 3 uh, type 4, which would be like software being 3.4. That kind of makes sense to me. Yeah, I've got a slightly different take on it. I think that the okay. type might potentially be like the yield. Of, of the torpedo, I know that there's been times when they just adjust that on the fly, but I think perhaps there's preset yields, um, and perhaps okay. there's different, you know, different flavors of photon torpedo, uh, depending on what the uh, what they're going to use it for, you know. So mm. um, that is a potential reason for those names as well. I just found out the name of the episode I was referring to was Relativity, um, which yes. has that segment that yeah. takes place pre caretaker. Yeah, yeah. So the way that they work is they're warp capable. And they're considered tactical matter antimatter weapons. So they, they basically have matter in them and antimatter, they fuse together and they explode in very destructive ways. That's going to be a big bad. It's basically like a warp core breach in a bottle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. 
And what we know from the warp core is that that uses deuterium as the matter. And then the antimatter, I guess, is anti-deuterium. Probably makes the most sense. And yeah. I, you know, and deuterium is one of those things. I've heard it many, many times. It's like, oh, deuterium. Right, yes. That thing. <laughs> but I had a look. It's yeah. heavy hydrogen. So it's basically a an isotope of hydrogen. And that's what the Bussard collectors are for. They are to, to pull in all this hydrogen that's in, in local space, and they can turn that into deuterium to, to help fuel the ship. Obviously, there's dilithium crystals, but that's more used to regulate that reaction. And that has yeah. improved a lot by Next Generation, as we've seen in, uh, in Relics with Scotty and, uh, and Geordi, where I don't think they go through dilithium crystals as much as they did in the original series where that was more of a, a thing that needed yeah. replenishing a lot quicker. It was like the central sort of engine of the entire ship was the dilithium crystals, wasn't it, really? Yeah. And that was kind of a plot device on multiple occasions about them, like, not working or they're running out or they're affected in some way, and then the whole ship was basically at risk of, you know, breaking effectively because of that. Yeah, and that doesn't really isn't really a factor in later Star Trek series, no. Yeah. But so deuterium very much is. Yeah, so they'd be able to get deuterium through the Bizarre Collectors, but I think that it's kind of mentioned that they they were finding challenges doing it. Maybe there's just not as much in the Delta Quadrant just floating around in space. My headcanon is they use up more deuterium than they bring in through the Buzzard Collectors, so they're always a de in, in a deficit, even, mm. even when they're... Because um, at the end of the day... Uh, Voyager and possibly intrepid class ships generally aren't aren't like um, like the Enterprise, which is can happen. It's designed to um, you know be used for very long distance, long range, many years long missions. Yeah, um, fair. Yeah. Voyager's a kind of a smaller ship. It doesn't have family on it. Um, it's faster and you know it has better technology than a Galaxy class ship. But um, it's um, I think it's really for short range specific missions and we see things like we see like the the the, the belepharon um in a uh, deep space nine which is another yep. intrepid class ship um, i mean that's just used to take to take people to a you know um a meeting on romulus um you know and that's it um not to say that's all <laughs> they use for just as escort ships but um your ships always uh, get lost now you're only good for escort missions <laughs> yeah we don't we don't want to risk putting you know in uh, entire crews on these things but yeah um <laughs> So that would suggest that they run out of energy more because perhaps you know they're they're not expected to be uh, to be used for several years, um, you know, constantly mm. without you know re being replenished in some way. So that's one kind of a head cannon thing as to why they sort of run out of energy, sort of sort of thing, or, or deuterium, because yeah. I think they burn through more than they're able to suck in through the buzzard collectors. And, and there's definitely episodes which relate around them hunting for more deuterium, uh, even in Demon. When they they find the the, the Y class planet, which has this silver blood that turns out to be an actual life form, but that was a life form that was made of deuterium. It was one of the elements that was is made of. Yeah, you have to like mine it. I think it's not like there's it's not like I'm going to talk Transformers again. Sorry, everybody, but it's not like what Transformers <laughs> use Energon as their fuel. And that's literally like a pink glowing cube that you can pick up and take somewhere. That that's Energon. Um, although you kind of have to mine it as well, like and it's not very well explained. Um, but, <laughs> but Star Trek, they kind of scan it, don't they? Find it in other materials, and you know, they'll mm. scan a rock face or something. And be like, oh, there's, we can mine deuterium from there. So, 
they have ways of kind of getting it from things that you know that aren't. It's not like it's just a, a single, a singular thing that they pick up and shove into a big furnace, <laughs> that sort of thing. In yeah, the I'm, ship, yeah. I imagine the bus art collectors probably get the most of it uh, because they probably don't have to refine it in quite the same way as they would if they were mining it. Um, yeah. But if there's just less of it in the region that they're in, then that's obviously going to be. Uh, a problem like when they're in the void that that was a big point of that was that in the void there is nothing so no deuterium for anybody which is why everybody's stealing deuterium supplies from everybody else's ships why it was yeah, such a, um, an expensive commodity and Janeway sort of starts a new federation um, in, 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 inside <laughs> that that's, that's actually a really good episode um, we'll, I'm sure yeah. we'll cover it pretty soon <laughs> um, but yeah um I, I, I'm thinking about it. I don't recall when deuterium was like first mentioned um, in Star Trek. I think Next Generation mentions it um, in like an offhand does, comment. Yeah. When uh, yeah, mm, no, it was it was mentioned. There, there is a a technical manual of sorts from the original series, and it was mentioned in there. That might the be the series. first time. Yeah, so deuterium was kind of brought up. You know, around the original series time frame, but I don't know when it was first used on screen. I would guess maybe Next Generation. I don't know yeah. if it was ever mentioned in the original series. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm trying to, to to look it up now. It was it was mentioned in like early TNG. Mm. Um, so Contagion, which is a um a, a, um, a second season episode. <laughs> did did, did you mean episode. Contagion? Contagion, sorry, yeah. Contagion. <laughs> is it contagion or contagion? It's contagion well, because it's like a disease. It's... Oh, right, okay. Yeah. That's a good point. It's contagious. Um, a contagious contagion. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There's a new fact for everybody there who's been mispronouncing <laughs> that for decades, potentially. Um, <laughs> so in that in that episode, should we say, um, they mention uh, deuterium tanks. So, mm. yeah, that's... Um, from what I can see, that might be. You know, I need to look look into it a bit more, but it could, yeah. In like the the writer, the writers' guides potentially would have had it before then, and yeah. So, um, and it's mentioned in Enterprise as well. So, in terms of it being used by Starfleet and uh, in in humanity generally, it's been around a long time as a source of starship fuel. So, yeah, it's been around a while. Yeah, so they ended up using up the full complement of torpedoes by season four in Scorpion. At that point, that's when uh, it goes into the negative for it. So I think that it's safe to say that they've probably been building replacement torpedoes. They can no yeah. doubt end up using replicators to get more of the casings. Um, I don't recall seeing any shots from latent image which was one of the episodes that we talked about previously uh, yeah. where it's used more as a funeral casket so uh, yeah. i don't know if that's counted towards it so again it may be that they've just made another casing just to use as a casket for that but yeah it's, it's interesting what sort of forms it takes isn't it really and and then the few times that we've seen it transported or something yeah mm. yeah I think in Demon, I think it's a similar thing, isn't it? They sort of put it. In, I think when they do try and mine it, it's like in a canister or something, or they try and yeah. beam it. They try and beam it. Don't don't they, on, on onto the ship? Yeah, yeah. It seems like photon torpedoes are probably the easiest thing for them to replace. 
because uh, they, they also had quantum torpedoes, which they could make with some modification. Uh, there was also spatial charges, in addition to the tricobalt devices that we've mentioned, which weren't normally yeah. carried. So given that it's just deuterium, and then however they would turn it into anti-deuterium, is obviously the <laughs> the big science thing that is beyond our current technology. Um, but I think that given that they're just trying to intermix those things, it's probably not too difficult for them to do it. I think that when we're looking at Janeway saying, and there's no way to replace them after they're gone, is probably just more the, oh no, we don't have a star base nearby to go pick up new ones. Yeah, I, I don't think it was actually explicitly said that, oh, um, we're on a mission to help replenish our photon torpedo stock. I think you can, <laughs> I guess you can just imply from them just generally trying to get deuterium, obviously one of the tasks that would come from having more of it would be to potentially make more torpedoes. And again, headcanon, we also that that's a huge head headcanon right there, but you can only think that they would do that. They did that in between episodes. Um, and to be honest, there isn't really a compelling... Uh, yeah, you probably come up with something. But but there there's not a compelling episode plot that would revolve around the need to make more photon torpedoes, or at least they never thought it was something that they should bother trying to make into the, the crux of an episode. So, yeah, I think with headcanon, we're just going to have to sort of say on specifically the torpedoes that they just, you know, when they're at any time they want a, a, a deuterium retrieval mission um part of the tasks that come out of that was to try and replenish their photon torpedoes and to us minus 85 probably isn't an unreasonable amount of torpedoes for them to make over the course of seven years although it's actually probably more like well they wouldn't wait to run out would would they before they would make no. new ones they would you know <laughs> top them up yeah it's interesting as well watching back this video on youtube just seeing how many times Voyager's firing things. I'm looking at it going like, I'm actually surprised that number isn't larger because it does yeah. get to a point where it just feels like they're just th throwing volleys of torpedoes left, right, and center in, in some cases. So yeah, it, it, it certainly seems a reasonable amount. Yeah, I mean, basically all the two parts. I mean, Scorpion, Equinox, Endgame, you know, all, all of those on their own would be like most of, pretty much all of Voyager's complement of torpedoes, it seems like. Yeah, just by those of you know handful of episodes. So yeah, and I think it's going to be somebody's job, you know, either Belana's or somebody that she designates to basically kind of go, okay, how much deuterium do we have? How much of that do we need for the warp core? And what do we have left over? And it's probably the excess that they yes. they can spare that goes, okay, now that has to go back into our defensive systems, because um, I think it's not just the warp core. I think. It, it does help power the rest of the ship. I mean, the, the warp core will help provide some power there as well to other systems. Um, but it, it does seem to be like just basically the life, fuel, and blood of the ship, really. It's just used for a yeah. lot of stuff. I, th I think, um, like I said, I think it's reasonable for them to keep on top of the supply. Uh, like they would, If they were efficient about it, which I think they probably would be. I mean, I don't know, probably be Tuvok that would probably being security officer maybe would probably be quite hardcore on making sure that they've got enough um mm, all times point, yeah. and it would only take you know the last episode or he wouldn't say another episode but the last you know um defensive stuff we had to do we we had to use 12 photon torpedoes so we're gonna over the coming couple of months we're gonna try and replenish those 12 and always keep our maximum you know stockpile that we're able to store safely which is probably just the 38 that, that that they started with we'll try and keep that at 38 you know at all times so 
they're not having to make 38 new ones in one go. They're probably just doing a handful here, a handful yeah. there, whenever they, 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 lose, they lose some for whatever reason. That's my kind of headcanon on that. Um, and I think that's reasonable over yeah. the course. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind yeah. of imagining fortnightly meetings between Tuvok, Torres, and Harry Kim, just <laughs> organizing all of yeah. that. Just keep keeping, yeah. uh, you know, a take of stock that they, yes. they have there. Because, I mean, and this is the other thing, when you're saying like 85, like they, they wouldn't do it all in one go. I don't think it's just resources. I think like, that's going to be a lot of space inside the ship as well. So I think that they're also going to be limited by how many they can hold, which we know yeah. is going to be probably 38 is probably the limit, if not 40. Yeah. And they would probably rather, um, considering all like, the food issues they've got, we know like Kez obviously made a hydroponics bay, which I think they, they kept they kept up over the years. I think, I think it really mm. featured much after the first couple of seasons, but obviously they would have kept that because Neelix has fresh vegetables and yep. stuff um, that we know about. We know he cooks them. Um, so I think that would probably be the absolute basic needs to, to survive would probably take up any extra room that they've got, like, you know, places to grow food, <laughs> probably deuterium as well to store excess that they could manage to get a hold of. Yeah. So, so there's bound to be somebody on the ship who's like, Kez has made a hydroponics bay. We've got fresh fruit, fresh vegetables. This is fantastic. This means more deuterium for torpedoes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Probably like some kind of crazed um, sort of like, you know, um person that really enjoys battles like uh so i can imagine a character that's like uh the bajoran security officer on lower decks is a bit like yeah i love being a security officer i love like doing beating up aliens and protecting the ship and everything it would be someone like that who, who loves that stuff a, a descendant of reed perhaps yeah yeah he loved all that didn't he he loved all <laughs> and like weaponry and everything um perhaps someone we don't see you know on a one of one of two vox um underlings that we don't see someone on the yeah. hazard team in elite force um but but, but yeah the bolian dude the bolian dude on there the hazard team who's always really nervous oh gel yeah yeah gel yeah it, it might even be him um but there's also the you know um and we're going really really deep into this um but there's also the the idea of how would they make them um and some people might think well i think that'd be quite difficult i don't see how they can make them but i think you know, they'll see that they'll have how to make a torpedo in, you know, the the, the computer banks of um, you know, the Starfleet data bank on 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 their ship. And mm. I'm sure, you know, given the situation that they're in, they would find a way to build photon like replicating the equipment the equipment needed. Because that isn't an issue really. If they can knock no. up an entire device that helps um Tom Paris turn from a lizard back to a human in like half an hour or whatever <laughs> again we we touched upon those that you know that on the very first episode of our show um but, they can probably knock up a similar thing that can bang knock out a torpedo yeah, yeah and, and not only that i mean they, they built the delta flyer you know which is a warp capable vessel which has a matter to reaction so you, you know yeah it's uh <laughs> it's not gonna be too difficult but i think that makes probably the most sense that it's uh, for how they go yeah. about it and and i think if you're in a survival situation it's basically like you do this or you die exactly yeah yeah so they'll think though they'll, they'll, then they've got the the technology to do it but it is a good thing that we're actually focusing on voyager right now because the episode we're going to talk about is a star trek voyager episode but before we get to it if you do have any star trek plot holes that you'd like us to tackle in a future episode shoot us an email at longrangesensors at icloud.com and we'll have a crack at solving it 
But for now, it's time for us to disarm our weapons and switch our focus to the wonderful world of biology as we head into Voyager's fourth season to engage in an ethically questionable scientific method. We ran a poll with our patrons, and this was the episode that was chosen by them. So thank you guys for, for getting involved with that. We do yeah. hope to do more like this in the future, not just for episode discussions, but even for some of the pre-show stuff as well. Definitely. And what a great episode as well. Oh, yeah. This is one of my favorites, actually, of, uh, of the show. It's just it's such a... The, the pace and everything is just spot on the entire way through. Oh, it, it's funny because we mentioned... Um, we have touched upon this episode previously. I think um, we referred to the TNG episode... Um, Schism. Schisms, I think, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And that has a kind of a similar plot about aliens um you know doing things to to the crew experiments to, to, to the crew against their will but i actually think this episode is way better than that and takes that yeah. similar plot and does it a lot better yeah mm. and it's also directed by david livingston who was one of the producers on next generation and is also the namesake of picard's fish in his ready room as we took yes. on in our, our episode about pets so yes. yeah it was it was directed by picard's fish which, uh, <laughs> which is great <laughs> Love Livingston. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did he survive generations? That is the question. Oh, we'll have to tackle that at some point, I think. But no, yeah. I, I, I think we all need to discuss that. Yeah, I, he, he survived. They're not going to kill please, a fish Please off. let him survive. That's harsh, <laughs> isn't it? Come on. <laughs> but we, we open the, the episode with Torres crawling down one of the endless Jeffrey's tubes, which if you look right behind her, is certainly not endless. They, they always had this kind of perspective shot where there was like a painting of the rest of the Jeffrey's tube. But you can see that the yeah. angle just switches suddenly just because they're limited with that. Like nowadays, they would do it in CGI. They would just green yeah. screen, replace with CGI, and it would match up perfectly. Didn't have the technology to do that quite like that in 97. Certainly not for the budget they were doing. So I'm pretty sure it's just an image that they just have painted on the back. Um, but you can you can tell yeah. where the set ends. <laughs> yeah, it'll either be that or the, some kind of like mirror effect. I know like in Aliens, the film Aliens, um, when they showed like this, the scene on the first scene on the Salako where it showed the Marines coming out of cryosleep. They only have like three actual tube cryo tubes. So they just put like some kind of a mirror effect on uh, at the end of the last one. So it had an endless kind of repeat of, of those four. So it looked like there was way more than there actually was. There are ways, yeah, funny little tricks you can do, can't you, to extend the, the length of something um, artificially, which is very, very clever, actually. Yeah, yeah. and not, not something you really notice on first viewing. This is always definitely one of those things that you notice as yeah. you're kind of re-watching. <laughs> so it's not, yes. it doesn't stand out too badly. Like, it's, 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 it's decent enough. Um, yeah. But the reason she's there is because Seven has decided to do some work just on her own accord. Uh, she's reconfiguring some power couplings because astrometrics needs more power. You know, not enough deuterium to go around. So engineering have lost hours of work because they've been dealing with power issues whilst trying to run a warp core diagnostic. And this is all down to, to seven's fault. It's the 24th century equivalent of um, your mate, like your flatmate, using all the Wi-Fi because you're streaming a video while you're trying to, like, you know, do some work or something. Yeah. <laughs> Take up all the bandwidth. <laughs> you want a Zoom, a very important Zoom call. And, yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Seven says she's not used to hierarchy. And 
you know, having to report to people. And it, it's interesting because there is still a form of hierarchy within the Borg Collective, but I think yeah, it's more just everything's more. designated and there's no question. And, uh, and I think it's basically just tasks needs to be done and it's just checked off as opposed to permission. We're still in very early Seven of Nine as well, aren't yeah. we? This is episode seven. So um, she obviously came in Scorpion Part Two. Mm. Um, so we're still very, very early Seven of Nine. So I think we expect little, little like inconsistencies like like that for the time being. Yeah, yeah, and also um, uh, her her collar is high again on this costume because she obviously had a high collar when she first appeared in the silver costume that caused her yes. to pass out. This one still has a high collar, but I just don't think it's as tight as the silver one was. But eventually, she loses yeah, her high the, collar. Uh, the suit that the doctor um, um, sort of quote unquote made for her because it healed her skin. It's like, yeah, yeah all right, mate. Yeah, yeah, we believe you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that being said, the doctor does appear in uh, Lycra or something in this episode, and he he was very happy to be able to show off his physique. And Jerry Wyatt apparently <laughs> kept. Yeah. Pinching his butt during it as well. Oh <laughs> yeah, I think for, she was just glad that for a change, somebody else have like skin tight clothing over their butt. You know, that yeah. sharing. It, it is. Too. It is a bit silly. It is a yeah. bit silly. I mean, um, we haven't really talked about it though. We've done a, a, um, an episode already with Ad Seven on. Um, it's it's very it's very nineties now. It's kind of the one thing that's probably aged. Uh, uh, I think you know. Let's have a sexy Lara Croft woman like on uh, the show. <laughs> But I mean, Jo Ryan is freaking awesome. She's a great, she's an awesome actress. She elevated the the quality of the show single handedly. Um, hmm. The episodes that revolve around Seven are amazing. Like this one is kind of um, mostly her, really. But it, it's really hard to headcanon her. Well, there, you don't need to headcanon. The doctor flat out said it helps you like heal your skin or whatever. But there's no reason why she can't just wear a, a Starfleet uniform, and she really should. I know there's probably an argument. Well, she's not a Starfleet officer, but well, there's the marquee on it that have been on wear Starfleet uniforms. Again, I guess you can you could push back on that and say, well, most of them went to the academy. Some of them didn't, though. Um, so yeah, nowadays, I, 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 obviously at the time, you know, I, I, I didn't I didn't mind because I was a, like a teenager. But um, now I'm like, eh, yeah, it's a bit cringe. I, I I do think though that Janeway may not have wanted to push too much. Onto her, I think letting her at least have something that wasn't yeah. the Starfleet uniform at least gave us some freedom and not feeling like she was being forced to be assimilated into the ship in that way. To some extent, it, it probably helps like show that she is like an other, you know, not in a, yeah. a negative way necessarily, but she's not, she isn't human. She, she is human, but she's kind of really a Borg, and it just really emphasizes the fact that she's not part of the crew in a normal way, you know, yeah. which is a uh, yeah, yeah. But I, I love the argument that Torres has with her and talking about, you know, she needs to get used to being part of a crew and following rules and, and working together. And then she starts to realize that Janeway gave her that same lecture when she joined the ship. And it's kind of like, well, if I can become part of the crew, so can you, Seven. <laughs> You've got no yeah, excuse. Probably kind of in, um, yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't sure if it was the reference, but is that what happened in Parallax? Um, but yeah. I'm not sure she gets a lecture in that. She gets a lecture from Chakotay. Um, yeah. It might not be Janeway, but I think it was a vague little reference to the episode Parallax, the second episode of Voyager there, which is also a good episode. Yeah, um, and, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And, and you know that there's definitely going to have been a lot of that and that her respect for Janeway has increased. Because in Caretaker, 
she started off by saying, you know, who is she to be ordering us around? You know, it's constantly points out, in that yeah, because <laughs> like, well, she's the captain, you know. But to have gone from that to to this, I, it's it's a really good kind of point out of where she's been after four years. Go from um, who is she to be making decisions for all of us to I really like my Toby the Targ is quite a big. <laughs> um, you know, character development uh, there. So, so yeah. <laughs> and that's where she became Banana Torres for me. That's my affectionate name for her. I think I mentioned that like, I used to accidentally call her Banana Torres when trying to say her name like quickly, and it just eventually just stuck. And I just call her Banana Torres now. So, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, she has the yellow, the gold uniform. So, yeah, it kind of works for the coloring of the uniform as well. So, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Oh, I, I do love that uh, that Paris is suddenly in sick bay, and he's he's telling the doc that he needs to go off and run errands, and, and Doc's not really happy with any of this, and he's, he's trying to make up excuses. Here. It's my con report, and Chakotay gets angry when it's late, and you know we've 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 referred to reports that need to be uh, given over time, and, and this is yeah. another example of that happening. Um, and he just points out that sick bay is is deadly quiet. There's not been anybody. Nobody's been injured. Nobody's been sick. It's just completely dead and he's bored and he's wanting to go away. Um, and so the doc allows yeah. him to leave given just that under those circumstances. But he goes into another room, replicates some flowers, and then initiates a site-to-site transport to beam into the section that, that Torres is working in. And he's, he's yeah. just trying to He's trying to make up for missing a date, which uh, was due to being assigned to the bridge. So, like, I think that's a pretty decent excuse. You, you can't just kind of blow off being ordered to the bridge because you had a date with somebody in secret. No, so. I mean, I did think, I mean, surely someone can detect that site-to-site transport. I can't imagine people <laughs> site-to-site transport a lot within the ship. Um, well, he's, or he's, maybe you have to look for it to to notice it. Secure, I guess Tuvok it would light up a little thing on his Elcar's panel wherever he's knocking around that particular point of the day. But yeah, well, I guess not. <laughs> Sickbay's been quiet, so there's nothing to say that he couldn't have done something to try and hide it. He he could have even yeah, just, yeah. you know timed it for when perhaps him and Tuvok were doing a shift change, so that they were on the bridge and perhaps it was just as they were crossing over. Yeah, and he's, he's a clever officers. dude. He can he can do this oh, yeah. stuff. I think I believe he'll be able to do it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also we're seeing a development of Tom and Bellana's um, relationship. I think I, I can't pinpoint when it started. It might have been around the episode Displaced um, when they really did start to. Um, well, I think it was when was it the Ponfar episode where there was a hint that there might be something between Paris and and Torres, But we're really seeing it sort of escalate, shall we say? Um, yeah, in this yeah. episode. Yeah, yeah, and then, and then they start kissing, and there's a brilliant visual effect scene where there's like it's a subdermal anatomical scan, almost kind of yeah. like an X-ray of them. Kind of gross, and, creepy at the same time. Yeah, because it's like people kissing. You see that all the time. Skeletons kissing. It is kind of weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even Great effects as well. It is. It's the the visual effects on this episode are brilliant for that, yeah. um, and especially for '90s CGI for that kind of stuff. Yeah, but, it hasn't aged really at all. Yes. Yeah. And and Torres is really paranoid that somebody's watching, but they just kind of put it down to nerves about getting caught. 
but it, it's it's really unsettling because you know that there is somebody watching there. Yeah, and there's not really. Um, it's obvious that there's not going to be someone standing there unless they're. You know, I guess you're already head cannoning yourself. Is there someone with a cloaking device, or perhaps <laughs> it's just some kind of like very deep scan of the ship that someone's doing on another ship? A cloaking device that's actually a cloak. <laughs> yeah, like the one in <laughs> Harry Potter. Yeah, that's the, <laughs> you can throw over yourself the, the actual cloaking device. Um, yeah, um, so it's it's kind of difficult to know for you to kind of figure out on your own what might be happening there really yeah hmm. and, and then we, we cut to janeway who's got a massive headache we've all been there uh yeah but she's getting a massage from the doctor and he's very vigorous yeah well, well she she's just wanting like painkillers or something and he's berating her for just wanting to take the easy way out uh, it was a yeah. hyperspray she was wanting sorry wasn't it it was a hyperspray she wanted um, yes and then she gets a call from the bridge. She decides to leave, and the doctor tries to stop her. She thinks that you know she's trying. You know, he's tried to stop her from from leaving completely. And he's like, "No, I'm just suggesting you have a change of outfit because she's trying to run onto the bridge wearing nothing but a towel." So, Which would have been made for an interesting episode. Yeah, yeah but it's uh, she's definitely not in the right <laughs> headspace with, with everything. Um, and it is a bit of a trope as well of like the captains never never want to have physical exams by the doctors and they always have to be ordered and that does mm. get a bit te tedious but and in this case and on initial viewing it's like oh it's the standard the captain doesn't like hanging out you know being checked out by the doctor I've got too much to do but we know you know as the episode goes on there's more to this uh, um, oh, yeah. than yeah. than that so yeah 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 and she's too tired to even focus on Chakotay's report of the stellar phenomenon that they're studying and you know, dismisses herself yes. And then in engineering, Paris and Taurus are being not so subtle about their relationship, just blatantly speaking very loudly to kind of hide the fact that they're just about to head up to the upper level to make out, which they do. I mean, come on, there's better places to do that on the Starship, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're wait, like, we wait until buffer time, you know? Yeah, the actors' performances are good, the characters' performances are not. So. <laughs> You know, they're, they're trying to be like, oh, yeah, you wanted me down to do this report. It's like, you blatantly did not. Um, <laughs> very obvious. Yeah, very stiff and like acted. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Torres is, is paranoid yet again. But with reason this time, because Tuvok appears. Paris then chases, and I love this because Paris chases Tuvok out of engineering. And he requests that the relationship doesn't appear on any reports. You know, Tuvok saying, you say, you want me to hide stuff? And they're like, no, no, I just I don't want you to be dishonest. But Tuvok doesn't seem to care. Yeah, He's he actually, just not he's actually, bothered at all. No, he actually seems to be, you know, happy to kind of... Uh, yeah, it, I mean, you would expect him to come down on like a ton of bricks like instantly. But uh, no, he's kind of like... I think he knows that, you know, this crew is a bit different to your average crew just the amount of time everybody's going to be spending together in in this ship so probably you know what you know i'll give people a bit of leeway if it's not you know actively harming the the, the, the ship or anything so you know kind of kudos to uh tuvok there for being a bit more yeah. chill in this situation plus there's already been established with wildman that uh you know that relationships and even children can be born on this ship so yeah, yeah but exactly. that, this is all we find out because of Changes that happen to Paris because really they're acting like juvenile teenagers around all this stuff, the way that they're sneaking oh, around and things. So it's like yeah. kids trying to hide from their parents and things. Exactly. So, 
smoking yeah. a fag behind the bike sheds at school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they're, they're trying to figure out how to hide this relationship in public, even down to who enters the, um, the briefing room first. It's like, no, yes. that'll be too obvious and, and all this stuff. It, it's, it's actually quite entertaining to watch. And then when they kind of establish like this, this isn't really a thing we need to do. Toys is like, so I'll go first. Then we cut to the end of the briefing. So we never actually get to see them walk in, but we don't need to. I don't think it would have really made too much of a difference. No. Um, but Janeway asks to see them and they assume that Tuvok's been ratting them out. But she hasn't heard anything from Tuvok. She's just been getting lots of reports of all of these juvenile public displays from all over the ship and just wants them to set a better example. And she is just yelling at them, pretty much. Yeah, more so than uh, you would expect from Janeway, who, um, Mm. when there's a disciplinary issue, she's quite kind of, you know, firm, but not shouting particularly or anything, but not in this case. Yeah, yeah. And also her appearance um, appears to have changed very subtly. Her hair's a bit more looking slightly, I would say, haggard, probably, you know, to, mm. a, to a small degree. Um, you're not like, oh, my God, what's happened to her? But, um, again, knowing what we know about the episode, having watched it, you know, many times, um, now looking back, um, you notice these very, in her, you notice these very subtle sort of um, changes in her appearance. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we learn sort of towards the end of the episode that she's been awake for four days straight. I don't yes. know how how long into that period we are yet, but it's definitely been at least a couple of days, given how she's looking. Yeah, definitely. Then we have Chakotay using his quarters. Now, I didn't realize this. I had to look it up afterwards, but he's reading reports from uh, the Excelsior. Oh, really? Is, yeah, it's, it's the USS Excelsior's logs from uh, Flashback that he's reading. As for why, whether that's relative to some of the phenomenon that they've been researching, it might be, it may just be that since that whole thing, it's actually, it's just an interest of him. Maybe he's just interested in some of the stuff that happened on Excelsior. And it might be one of those just ways that he relaxes, just reading logs in a, in a similar way to how people perhaps, uh, you know, read autobiographies and things, you know, read nonfiction. Or, you know, in um, an early episode of uh, Next Generation, Riker watches like a hologram of some, someone dancing. Uh, I'm in, in his quarters. <laughs> or, yeah. or Picard refers to, I'm going to get in my quarters. I'm going to turn on my personal relaxation light and I'm going to read a book. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's from, I think it's from 11010, whatever the name, you know, the, you know, the episode yeah, is. With the binary numbers. Yeah, and I was like, I really want to see what a personal relaxation light looks like. Is that just a, a, a light? What is it? Does it like in hit you with like marijuana or something to like make you relax or i want to know what that is he just he mentions it you don't see it um but yeah it's it's probably a traditional earth bulb rather than these new yeah. fancy lights that they have or just like yeah. a halogen bulb or something <laughs> yeah but I, I don't think in terms of like um flashback i don't like chakotay didn't have any active kind of involvement really it was a Tuvok and Janeway episode wasn't it really yeah yeah I I think it's probably just interesting reading and there's probably there's probably also a limit as to how much stuff that there is to read on the ship he's like I've read everything else all that's left of these logs yeah and like like the the Excelsior is like just a famous old ship you know so naturally you know people might want to read about it yeah and and also without sort of spending too much time on this maybe it's also just the fact that he was McKee he's been first officer now for for three to four years 
maybe he's just looking at what other advice he can get given that there's no Starfleet training around. Oh yeah, exactly. It's like a oh actually no, something popped into my head. Um he did actually have a personal interaction with Sulu. Um I think he I think he like sponsored him like to get into the uh, uh, yeah, Captain Sulu sponsored Chakotay to get to sponsored his application to the academy. Oh really? Um yeah, oh, okay. um, in the episode Tattoo, um the sort of Native American based episode is uh, like explores Chakotay's like backstory um oh, quite I a lot. About um that. yeah, um Captain Sulu sponsored him. Um obviously, you know, I, I, I don't know if he was probably an admiral by that point, but yeah. Mm. So I guess that would make sense for Sulu would take an active probably has an active interest in Sulu Sulu's career. So yeah. Um that was probably a little nod to that reference, I think, yeah. Which is kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. And and then he, he ends up getting a, a, a coffee starts drinking it and then we get another one of these internal scans uh so interesting seeing like the coffee just going down into his stomach again cool yeah like cool and gross at the same time again but a really really cool effect yeah but then this flashes around his neck yeah and then he drops his coffee and he's just completely shaking he goes over washes his face and his hair starts falling out and we next see him waking up well sitting up in sickbay Looking very old and weathered. You can see his tattoo actually stretches back a lot further down the side yeah. of his head under where his hair would have been. So maybe he had it tattooed when his head was shaved at one point. Yeah. But kind of looks like Skeletor. Yes. He does, yeah. Like it's yeah. it doesn't look like traditional aged makeup. It's definitely just no. it, or it does look like somebody who's just weathering very quickly, kind of like the bad guy in uh, the last crusade oh yeah when he drinks the, the wrong um the wrong from the wrong cup yeah yes yeah yeah i mean again obviously this would have been like michael westmore um but yeah, yeah. like like the sort of big huge like slight scout skull like eye sockets on him look look incredible but horrifying at the same time yeah. it looks amazing you really believe he's like really old like in his 90s or so or something yeah. yeah uh and then the docs try to speculate on some of the causes some of them even being you know, real world ones we have doesn't ever mention any of the ones that uh, that were in the original series or Next Generation, but everything that he says like it just would otherwise be impossible, and he would need to figure out and do more research and insist that Chicote stays in Sigbay, who's desperately trying to relieve. They never, they never really. Um, they very the only time I can make, I remember like something happening on a starship, and they specifically specify this has happened before, and this is what they did was was the naked now I think. When they literally reference really important moment in Star Trek, that is, um, it actually firmly established that the next generation and the original series did were taking place in the yeah. same universe, and it was exactly how many years further back because that was just put in press releases and stuff. There wasn't anything in the in the episode, the first episode, to tell you this takes place eighty years after Captain Kirk. I mean, that was the first sort of example, and basically placed a year on when next generation happened. Um, actually, well, not a year, but. A vague kind of era, um, yeah. so yeah, like, not surprising uh, with this. We we did have McCoy making his appearance in the pilot, but again, yes. it's 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 this is continuation, not reboot, is what they were yeah, really yeah. kind of pushing there. The Doctor realizes he can make an electron resonance scanner, uh, so a wonderful bit of uh, of Czech technology to try and investigate this further. That old chestnut, the old electron resonance resonance scanner. Yeah, like yeah. Barely how, how does it work? Very well, thank you. And <laughs> we, we end up in turn forward where Kim and Paris are having a conversation and Kim's just pointing out that 
I was quite being a little bit less obvious with everything. Yeah, I mean, Torres, at least uh, Torres locked the keypad on, on the L cars uh, panel while yeah. they were, you know, getting, getting down to it, shall we say. Oh, but, she um, did, didn't she? Blatant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a funny little little moment. At, at, just, actually, just to make uh, sure uh, they don't accidentally eject the warp core in the yeah. throes of passion. Try explaining that one to the captain who's already just angry enough at you. Well, that, that, that could be a euphemism in itself, right? Uh, <laughs> me and the missus uh, ejected the warp core, should we say? Uh, <laughs> Prematurely. 24th century euphemisms, yeah. 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 But their relationship, <laughs> just at this point, is not a secret. Obviously, Voyager being Voyager, everybody knows. Um, and then Neelix just collapses in the back kitchen. And uh, Yeah, Kim, Kim has a craving for some weird, weird um, like dinner that they had the day before. And he was going to have it for breakfast. And we can all relate. And Paris like sort of criticizes him for that. But we can all relate to that. How many times have we had an old hmm. kebab? Well, not an old kebab, but from last <laughs> night. And you thought, I'm just going to have that for breakfast. Or pizza. It's just the equivalent of that, you know. Yeah. It's reasonable. Paris of all people, he loves pizza. He probably had pizza for breakfast. So. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. But he, he, he started shaking as well. And, and, and the doctors figured out that, the, that his DNA has also been hyperstimulated in the same way that Chakotay's was. But instead of aging, it's been turning him into a species called a Mylian, which is a race that lives not too far from Neelix's home planet of Talix. Yes. And it turns out his great-grandfather was Mylian. And he's got spots all over yeah. his face. His whiskers seem to have fallen out. He doesn't have his whiskers anymore. Yeah. And uh, Yeah. Mylians apparently, you know... Uh, ejected the warp core, shall we say, wink, wink, uh, with um, Talaxians, <laughs> and hence, you know, um, there were. I, I think uh, Neelix says that they they lived on a nearby like uh, uh, moon or something of Talaxia, mm. something like 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 that, or they were a nearby planet, and yeah, so they intermarried and all that stuff. Yeah, so he's a little bit Mylian. Yeah, so it's like one eighth or something like that. Yeah, um, and then there's a brilliant. Absolutely brilliant back and forth between Neelix and Chakotay, where Chakotay is kind of wondering what the smell is, and uh, Neelix is realizing that he's <laughs> developing Mylian sweat glands, so he absolutely reeks. And then <laughs> they're just arguing over who's got the worst condition, you know, who's in the most pain, and all this kind of stuff. You know, you've got, uh, you know, Neelix saying that he's getting so much pain he's going to have trouble walking. Chakotay's like, I've already got you beat. <laughs> I can't. He's got arthritis. And oh, it's just this wonderful, wonderful back and forward. I wish we'd seen more, a bit more of that when you've got multiple people sick. It's like, yeah, well, I'm more sick than you. <laughs> Star Trek is great. At, is great at that. I mean, certain shows are a bit better than others. Like probably, I would say Deep Space Nine is the best at the comedy stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. but Star Trek is gen really good at having somehow shoehorning in moments of like levity and moments of comedy in an otherwise mm. dire situation um although not probably not the point of die yet in, in, in this episode but um yeah that was it was really it's really funny that that moment was really good and, and not a moment that they really have shared together that much like chakotay and neelix aren't really characters that cross paths very often no not really um i would say at all i think really that at any moments at all to be honest um like mm. chakotay is not is kind of un probably you know it, it's not a secret that he was underused i think and actually robert beltram was actually quite unhappy with yeah. the sort of path that his character went under but i think chakotay is a great character i mean there are some great episodes 
that feature him prominently, like Nemesis, is probably my personal sort of favorite. And mm. um, Shattered, um, they're they're two really good for any Chakotay fans out there. And um, is it U- Unity, the one with the Borg, where he finds the Borg? It's um, the first time seeing the Borg. Yeah, it is. Uh, it got criticized yeah. at, um, at the time for the people wanted like a big battle or something with the Borg, but it's it's actually br- brilliant, like Borg episode. It was nice kind of seeing that you were just on the outskirts of that territory, that there were still some there. Uh, yeah, that they handled it really well, I think, um, yeah. introducing the Borg, because um, we had first contact just around that time that episode come out. So I don't think it would have been a good idea just to go all, all blazing in. But anyway, yeah, that's a, another great a great episode. But three good Chakotay episodes there to check mm. out. The Doctor and Taurus end up magnifying Chakotay's DNA, and they find this barcode-like tag just attached and it's a sub-molecular technology that's beyond anything that Starfleet has previously discovered. Yeah. And it, it looks really neat. <laughs> it really does. Um, but it's also in Neelix's DNA too. And the doctor is like, I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but I think they're related. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was an interesting thing to see. And it actually weirdly reminded me of a moment in Blade Runner where... Um, Deckard um, has a snake scale and he gives it to someone to scan it to see if it's real or, or, or a, a replicant snake. Um, hmm. And it turns out they find a barcode in like sort of when they zoom down to like the molecular sort of, well, I'm not sure if it's the molecular level, but a very, very extreme zoom, zoom into like deep into the pores of the, of, of, of the scale. Um, and um, if that's even a thing, I'm probably butchering snake scale stuff. Um, but yeah, you find a barcode and it actually reminded me of that. And that's how they knew it was manufactured. Uh, so it was, it was a fake snake. So, yeah, it kind of reminded me of that. And a really, again, another really cool effect that, you know, hasn't aged or looks bad or anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the other interesting things is that Thomas finds that it's out of phase, which is why the initial scans didn't ever reveal it. And they find it's transmitting a signal. And as they're figuring this out, then the doctor's program starts getting deleted. Thomas is trying to transfer him back to sickbay but she collapses and then he disappears and you assume because he is hitting on the control panel that he has taken himself back somewhere but um there is also that did he did he get deleted obviously not likely to be a thing it's it's a great moment as well because the the, the stakes of the episode increase like very rapidly in in that yeah. one scene you just go from a fairly laid back Torres and the Doctor just kind of trying to work out what's going on. I mean, we're not laid back, but they're not panicking or anything. Like, they, they start working out what might be happening. And then, you know, and in your mind as well, you're watching this thinking, oh, this is getting really interesting. And then when they start to delete the Doctor, it's kind of clear at that point that there's some nefarious third party at play here doing stuff to them. Because obviously they don't want the Doctor to find out um, what's happening because he's getting close to it. And it kind of gets, and, and you're then um, horrified by what happens to Balana. Um, obviously, they're manipulating her DNA, you know, um, via Wi-Fi sort of thing, um, based upon what we just found out, you know, a matter of seconds uh, previous to that. And then the Doctor disappears, and it makes you think, oh, my God, what what, what can they do now? You know, that's their, their mm. two best people on the job, really, probably are gone. Um, so yeah, really a great, a great scene and a great way to very quickly ramp up the the jeopardy um, in, in 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 the episode. Yeah, and and Torres is unconscious in sickbay, and you know any hopes of what they've discovered just seem to have disappeared. You know the the 
stuff that they were working on just seems to have been classified as a failure. They don't know what happened as to why she passed out and why the doctor's gone, but you know, they're, they're not really looking. It doesn't seem like the suspicions were in the right place for them to just pick up exactly where Torres and the doctor left off. But yes, we do discover that the doctor is hiding in the Da Vinci simulation, which was the big holodeck, uh, holo novel of the season. And Joe frequently visits, yes. Yeah. And he taps into Seven's audio processor and tells her to tell no one that she's the only person who can hear him and to make up any excuse to leave. And her excuse actually is really, really well done because she just says that she's going to go and fix the equipment that the Doctor and Torres were working on. And there'd be no reason to suspect that like it just felt like a, a typical seven decision in the moment yeah no one was going to question that yeah no i also like that uh when she does meet up with the doctor he's kind of like call me paranoid but i don't think that that's a coincidence yeah and uh and, and they start to find out that there's a phase variance of 0 0.15 as to why everything's out of sync. So he he adjusts her ocular implant. So her vision changes. And bulk vision's always weird to me because it's always distorted and skewed. And it's like, how is that better? But it's, it's interesting because like it does make you think about what how much of seven of nine is still like a Borg implant. I mean, yeah. We do see some of that in the episode The Gift, uh, when mm. they're sort of basically, you know, trying to fix her, you know, um, help her transition to back into humanity again. Um, yeah. And one kind of slightly creepy thing is they obviously had to give her an, a, a, an eye. Um, uh, you know, mm. they, they, she has one real eye, I think, and, and one uh, prosthetic one that the Doctor made. That's probably better than, I think the Doctor sort of boasts in that episode that it's better than a real <laughs> eye. Well, yeah. he, he, but he also boasts at just how accurately he made it look like the original. The colour. Yeah, yeah the exactly. Colour spot on. <laughs> so, so it's an interesting point, like... Um, it's been how much of a like you think of Robocop perhaps, and Robocop yeah. is basically a torso, you know. Um, I don't think Seven is quite like that, but you do see, even on like Star Trek First Contact, there's scenes where you see people get assimilated on the Enterprise and some of them have had their arm removed. Yeah, um, I don't think it's, I don't think it's actually ever really fully, um, de no, demonstrated or said on screen what how much of her is a human, but I, I think you know, all of her limbs are she's got. She's basically 90% human, I think, in terms of what limbs she has and everything. Um, mm. But it's interesting how, you know, things of her could be tweaked to help with, you know, help them get out of whatever pickle that the crew is in sort of thing. Yeah, I think some organs are also reliant on the technology to keep it going because they've just not been able to sustain themselves because they've not had to yeah. for so many decades. Exactly, um, yeah. But it changes her vision. We get a kind of greenish hue over everything and she doesn't see anything. Like, there's nothing untoward. So the doctor kind of points out, well, that's one room down and 256 to go. So we have 257 rooms on, on Voyager. Yeah, which is a very precise amount. Yeah, I also think it's a brilliant place for the doctor to hide because he, he is taking on the wall. He is just painting away. If anybody came in, all they would just see is just holograms everywhere, and he just looks like any other character in that hologram. So it really is actually quite a good hiding place. Yeah. I mean, you could argue, um, yeah, I mean, if you, if you think about it a bit too much, you can probably break that down a little bit because the aliens that are, you know, 
um, that are hiding, uh, that are phased. Um, I mean, you know, they know what the Doctor looks like, so if they stumbled across the holodeck you know, and they saw the Doctor there, they, well, they could just assume that other holograms could look sim- similar, I suppose. Um, yeah. So I don't think it's completely foolproof, if I'm being honest, and I'm really analysing it with, like, super nerd trek, trekky <laughs> annoy- annoyingness. I, I, I would think that it may fool some of them. Yeah. Yeah. It probably just depends which ones are assigned to which people and area and so on. But they'd have to perhaps look a little bit deeper. But when she's going out in the corridor, that's when she starts to see things. So she starts to see a guy with this vice over his head. And the best way that I can describe it for anybody who hasn't seen this or just hasn't seen it in a long time, it looks like one of the contraptions from the Saw movies that's placed over people's heads. Oh, yeah, when they put on the head, yeah, that's horrific. It does, yeah. yeah. It really does. That that first one that you see is is quite a big kind of thing, you know, and it, it, that's kind of disturbing, really. And it's then a really you, disturbing scene. Yeah, and, and you feel she, for Seven because she can't react to any of this stuff. She she's seeing no. it, but she has to, you know, completely look like she would normally look, not looking at any of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And then she enters the turbo lift, and so does one of the aliens, who then starts to proceed to probe her chest with some device. Which, again, is super creepy. Yeah. And then she walks into 10 Forward, and 10 Forward is a freak show. I mean, it's full of people, <laughs> and they've all yeah. got these weird devices. They've got things sticking in them, things sticking out of them. There's all these other aliens that are just walking around and just monitoring them with various devices and things. And that, that would be really, really harrowing to see. And, she and it's kind of, in- uh, as, as the viewer, it's left to you to, to kind of think about what those devices are actually doing to people. You know, yeah. People have got things <laughs> coming out of their necks, coming out of their arms, torsos and everything. And that adds that extra element of like horror um, to it, really. You know, you're just seeing them with these things on them and you're like, God, what, 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 what are they even doing? Yeah. yeah. I remember it being very disturbing the first time I saw that at the age I was back in 97. So yeah, it, it really uh, is definitely, disturbing. It still is. Yeah. Yeah, the the less you know about what they're doing, yeah, the 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 more terrifying that will be. Um, yeah. And Seven hits to the back just to pour a coffee, but then tells the Doctor over communications that the aliens are everywhere. Either she decides, or the Doctor suggests that she should report this to Janeway. And we see Janeway in in the ready room, and she is increasingly frustrated. She's chewing Tuvok's ear off about the crew. And how angry yeah. that they've made her. And she's you know, saying, that they shouldn't do this, shouldn't do that, blah, 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 blah. And Tuvok's like, should I flog them as well? <laughs> yeah. A great bit of dark humor there from Tuvok, yeah. Yeah, and she's got enough of her, in, enough self-control to realize that she's perhaps overreacting. Yeah, and what we mentioned earlier that um, she looked a bit haggard, you know, already, like earlier in the episode, and that's increased even more. You can see her hair's a bit of a mess and she just looks like, Looks like she's had a, a heavy night out, really. Um, yeah, she, so, she yeah, does not look see... approachable. No, you, would, you can see you'd she's instinctively worsening. keep your distance. Uh, definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Seven's about to report all of this to Janeway, but the aliens are there too, and there are needles, st- like multiple needles, sticking in both sides of her head, it's which gross. is yeah. And so she just says that her attempts to repair the scanner have failed and Janeway is just kind of like that's all you know like why are you wasting my time with this kind of thing 
and uh, you know, because obviously Janeway is just so like completely shocked at what what she's seeing happening to Janeway that she really struggles to regain her composure um, at that yeah. moment. And, and then we get what actually is quite a touching moment because Janeway sort of sits down and she's just openly kind of like, "I just want a holiday in Tuscany." There's a, a, a there's like a village or there's like a building or something that she wants to check out on the holodeck in in a recreation of that and Tuvok just says I will join you for a glass of wine yeah it's a really nice mo- moment yeah like they hold hands and here's somebody who's not emotional but still has a lot of empathy and it it really shows just how close they are as friends it's been established already that they're close and they've known each other for a long time I think 20 odd years or something I think is what they say at that point yeah um by the time they're on Voyager together, but yeah, it, it's a really nice, another just a little nugget of Janeway and Tuvok's relationship as it develops over, over the course of the series, yeah. yeah really definitely feel that that's <laughs> like, it, it's all completely believable that they would be that close given yeah. that's how they support each other. Yeah, exactly. And it's also you know, at the same time, now we clearly know why she's, she, I mean, she said she's got headaches. Seeing spikes or whatever they are literally in her head is just horrifying to uh, uh, to see. So yeah, so it's an interesting juxtaposition of you know loveliness moment with Tuvok, but also what's going on to her at the moment. It is yeah, and I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but certainly for me, when I've had really bad headaches, I've always just imagined that that must be what's happening. <laughs> I just imagine that it's just these little needles just poking in my head. Through my kind of just visualizes it yeah <laughs> yeah you know and that's that's always kind of there in the back of my mind thanks to this episode so <laughs> if i ever have a headache then you know that that's what i'm imagining is yeah. going on there and it's it's some alien's fault that it's it's, it's happening <laughs> but seven and the doctor figured out kind of how they can disable these dna tags they can do so by administering a, ne- a neuroleptic shock which they can generate just from the power relays the doctor points out that it will be painful for the crew, but that they will recover. And Seven is also kind of saying it's going to take time because there's a lot of security protocols that they have to, to bypass. Yeah. Tuvok picks up on this when she's actually trying to attempt it. He notices that she's breaking safety protocols in engineering. And so he goes down and tells her to stop because she's refused to overcome. He knows that Seven is attempting to deceive him and that what she's doing would cause a discharge that would be harmful to the crew. And there's three aliens in engineering at the time, and they all take an interest in this argument that's happening. And they, they all lean in and they observe. And one of them realizes that Seven, like, she can't ignore them anymore. She's looking at them and realizes that they can be seen. So Seven, knowing that the jig is up, grabs Tuvok's phaser modifies the frequency, likely to the 0.15 variance. Yeah. Um, also in that would interfere with that anyway. And then shoots. And that alien appears in what looks kind of like a transporter-like effect. Yeah, it kind of shimmers into the scene, yeah. Yeah. Rather than it just being a like a dissolve, it is there is this kind of field that's there, which is kind of cool. It's kind of like an orangey-brown type thing. Yeah. But yeah, Seven just completely threatens the other ones that are still invisible. And uh, they, they know that her threats are real. <laughs> They've seen enough to know that uh, she is not kidding, that she will shoot them. 
it's, it's, a, it's a great moment from Seven as well because she was basically pay, um, back, backed into a corner by Tuval, but her quick thinking mm. has kind of, you know, meant that she's been able to instantly show that these are the aliens that have been doing all this stuff to us, you know. Um, and she basically did the only thing that she could do, really. She couldn't be allowed, allow Tuvok to, I don't know, throw in the brig or anything. So really good quick thinking from Seven of Nine to turn the situation around and, you know, alert the crew to what's happening, basically. Yeah. And there's this this alien that they have managed to capture is taken to the brig, and Janeway confronts her. Uh, we never get a name in the episode for the aliens. Really, we don't. No, no, they're they're never once mentioned. I know that there's there's stuff online, especially on Memory Alpha, where they mention them, but that's because the names were in the script, but they never right, appeared yeah. on screen. So they're still just these just these aliens. There's just no mention. There's no personal connection there, and Janeway obviously just doesn't even care. Like, normally she'd want to know who the people are. She doesn't even care at this point. She's beyond that. I think certain um, barriers to her, you know, um, you know, her control, her mental control has broken down, basically. Yeah. So she's a lot more, um, you know, she, she's more liable to lash out than uh, she would otherwise because of what those aliens have been doing to her. Yeah, and they're, they're describing them as tests and she's calling them mutilations. They're insisting that it's medical research. She's saying you're more like a hostile invasion force. There's this very, it's a, it's a fun tennis match between the two, really. Yes. And, and this alien is talking about how their techniques are as benign as they can make them. And Jane Roy certainly isn't feeling that her experiences have been anything close to benign. And it does mirror some medical experiences that have happened in real life in the past. And she's kind of representing that, saying how minor discomfort should outweigh, uh, you know, be outweighed by these medical breakthroughs that they can make from it, which Janeway completely disagrees with, rightly so. And history has taught us that that is certainly the case. Yeah. And they point out that Janeway's dopamine levels have been increased to simulate some of her aggressive impulses. And they were wanting to test her behavioral restraints and seeing how good she was with that, they've just been amping it up further and further and further and wondering how much more strain she can bear. And she's pointing out not much. And she pretty much snaps at that point. The, the alien, like um, Al Alzen, I think she's, she's called, at least at least according to me Memory Alpha, um, mm. is just so infuriatingly kind of deadpan about, about all, all of this and completely unfeeling and has no empathy at all. To the point where, when Janeway snaps, you're kind of you're kind of happy that she did, because <laughs> I think yeah. she was kind of asking for it because she, you know, she's quite happy just to um, let the entire crew, you know, uh, you know, a huge proportion of it die just so they can get their data at the end of it, which is horrif a horrifying thing, really. But she's so deadpan with the way she talks about it that is, you know, this kind of disgusting and reprehensible. Well, it is disgusting, and reprehensible, and. Yeah, she deserves Janeway to kind of, you know, assault her, really. <laughs> yeah, and she, she kind of lays the cards on the table as well, just kind of like, these are, this is the deal. That if Janeway and the crew stop resisting, the fatality rate will be minimal, albeit with some deformalities. Yeah. And that afterwards, they'll even share the data. How nice of them. Yeah, it's like they're trying to be reasonable, but obviously it's... That's not the case. Janeway just is not having any of it. And they kind of point out, well, if not, then the experiment will be terminated. <laughs> so it's like either minimal crew deaths or you all die. 
So that's kind of funny, isn't it? They just yeah, yeah we'll just kill every. It's like oh, um, the, 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 we, we, we've been um, experimenting on hamsters in our lab, but if if, if Petter come along, we'll blow the whole lab up. Yeah. Kind of thing, isn't it? Really, yeah. I think Janeway even refers to it as being treated like lab rats as well. So yeah, you've you've already got that analogy in your head too. Um, but whilst we've only got one of them in the brig, there's all the other ones that are still going around and doing stuff on the ship. So there's an emergency meeting in the ready room. There's uh, Janeway, Two Box Seven, and the Doctor, and they're trying to come up with other ways to get rid of them because. The internal sensors can't detect them. The aliens have modified the EPS relays, so they can't deliver the neuroleptic shock like they were planning to. So their plans are all completely out the window. And more and more people are turning up in sickbay with more severe symptoms. And Tuvok points out that a direct conflict would probably be inadvisable because they're probably just going to hit a button and modify anybody's DNA in the moment and stuff. So like... You, you fight it. It's almost kind of to point out, you know, in this case, resistance is futile. Yeah, there's no way that they're really stuck. They are utterly stuck at, um, in this situation that they've got. Yeah. You can't, it's hard for you to head cannon a way out of it, really. Yeah. Watching them. And, yeah. And then we, we hear a call from the bridge and there's a crew member that's convulsing on the floor. She's got ruptured blood vessels all over her face. And the doctor's saying that she... graphic kind of effect, really, isn't it? But effect, uh, effective at the same time. Yeah, and Janeway's trying to save her life, like trying to do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and so on, but the doctor's pointing out she has severe renal stress, she's got too much internal bleeding, uh, then she ends up being brain-dead, and it's just like there's literally nothing you could have done. And it's... It, it, that is the thing that just makes Janeway snap. Like, she's lost a crew member to this, She's not going to go through more. And this is where we get into probably my favorite part of the episode. And it's just Janeway losing all sense of decorum, yeah. all sense of diplomacy. Yeah. And it's just all out guns blazing. And it's just brilliant. You've got uh, Tuvok asking what she's doing. She's like, I'm running an ex- little experiment of my own. Red alert. And she flies the ship towards a binary pulsar. And she's basically trying to do it to crush the ship like a tin can, she says. And the the alien, one of the aliens just appears and is suggesting that it's just more likely that it's just to intimidate them, that it's a bluff. And Janeway is calling them out on it and saying, well, you're more than welcome to stick around and find out. <laughs> and kind of, like, kind of like John McClane she's kind of turned into at this point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's. she's I, I love when she's like, I don't think you realize that you are not in control anymore. She she is just fighting back against her abusers. That's a great line, actually. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I, I think and you kind of you, you actually back her at this. You, you know, she should be all Star Trekky and like to try and you know solve it with diplomacy. But at the end of the day, I don't think she can. I think she's doing the. It's probably about the only thing that, that she can realistically do to try and stop it, stop this from happening, is what she does. I think. Yeah. I think probably my favorite line in the whole thing is when she just explains her reasoning. And it's really this moment that makes them realize that there's no coming back from this. Because she's also kind of pointing out that the odds of them even surviving getting through the pool size, like one in 10. Tuvok offers that it's actually more one in 20 at best. And the thing that she says is, that's what you were trying to accomplish, wasn't it? 
pumping up my dopamine levels to push me to the edge, keeping me awake for four days straight with the constant pain of your devices drilling into my skull, well, this is the culmination of your work. And guess what? You're going to be right here to collect the final data. Yeah, that, 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 that's a great line um, that was written there Ooh. by the script writers. Yeah. It, it's just a real punch in the gut to these aliens. It's, oh. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's probably Janeway at her best. <laughs> Very triumphant sort of thing, yeah. yeah. Whilst also at her worst, <laughs> in a lot of cases. <laughs> um, Ironically, yeah. Yeah, but that is when they realize, okay, this isn't a bluff. And they, the two of the ships start to disengage from the hull. Uh, one of them successfully, the other one gets completely destroyed and ripped apart. Riddance. And this is when they kind of realize, okay, well, we're now in this. They have to go full speed to try and reach escape velocity. And there's multiple hull breaches. Tuvok points out that he's n he wasn't exaggerating those odds. They really are kind of screwed at this point. And they yeah. just managed to break through. And the sequence of, of it, it, it feels like probably one of the most believable moments in terms of the ship falling apart and probably one of the times when you feel that the ship has probably been in the most danger it's been in at least for me personally yeah. that's how i feel yeah i think they, the effects do a good job i think it kind of you know they put a light uh, a, a sort of a very overexposed lighting effect on the on, on on the bridge to represent you know the that star um it's not a cheesy everyone's shaking and going oh my god and and, and, and bouncing around um, yeah, it's 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 not overdone, but it's it, it's you can clearly see that you know the ship is struggling and potentially is going to fly apart. Um, it's done effectively, yeah, definitely. I, lo I love when uh, <laughs> she brings up Tuvok's early comment about her being reckless, and Tuvok says that was a poor choice of words. It was evidently an understatement. <laughs> yeah, again, another another great little Jane Wayne Tuvok moment there, despite the. <laughs> You know, the jeopardy and, and uh, the situation, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They have great banter. It is, yeah. And, and then we, we kind of get to the, the final scene, which is an interesting one that really sets up a lot of stuff for later on in the show. Because Paris has finally managed to organize some time to go on a date. But in exchange, he now has to pull double duty on the bridge and sick bay. Which, you know, not unlike a lot of people trying to get a shift swap. At their work and uh, yeah. shuffle things around. Um, <laughs> then Torres is getting called from engineering to try and help with stuff, and she's kind of like, "Well, nope, nope, just put a hold on that. We'll deal with it tomorrow." And saying that it's nice to be the chief engineer <laughs> to be able to do that. Yeah. And yeah. and then there's there's a lot of fun flirtatious sarcasm and joking and things between them that just works so well between the two actors. Um, I love. How uh, Paris says, like, oh, I replicated it myself. And she's like, you're too good for me. Which does bring up what it would be like to date on a ship where, you know, you invite somebody over for a meal and it's very rare that they're actually cooking it themselves. They are literally just getting it from a replicator. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's well established at this point in time as well that um, <clears throat> people do cook on ships. Mm. So yeah, it's so it's kind of a, a funny joke that you know the easy route is just to to, to replicate it. Um, yeah, and it just shows like you do believe that these are these these guys could you know could be a couple. You know they've got that banter and they've got you can really um, it doesn't feel awkward or or like um, tacked on or hastily put together at the last minute to get them to have a mm. relationship. It does feel 
genuine. And obviously they've got the, it, it helps that there was an episode where, you know, they probably had their hormones screwed around with and uh, that might have accelerated <laughs> things, but you do believe they should be together. Um, it's a really yeah. nice relationship that we have in Voyager. Yeah. And I remember an interview once when Roxanne Dawson had kind of said that they had already had chemistry beforehand and that really this was more, as you say, kind of accelerating that, that it yeah. didn't, um, you know, it wasn't creating the entire thing artificially. It was just pushing them closer to each other. And so that, that stuff was already there, which is why you can believe that it continues onward. But that is something that they do allude to in this, because after they're interrupted by Harry, who's just trying to return a pad and stuff, and it, it really just kind of shows that there's all these interruptions that can happen and have been getting in the way, but they're trying to push those all aside. And they do not disturb turned on. <laughs> yeah, that is it, yeah. He's like, no more yeah. interruptions. Um, <laughs> but they get into this conversation about how they both think that Janeway was right to some degree, and then agreeing like, we were out of control lately, you know, and they've been messing with our hormones and, and then questioning of the whole relationship is just based on this whole human, uh, sorry, on this whole alien experiment, not a human experiment, an alien experiment yeah. on humans and half Klingon. Anyway, I'm going too much into that. And it's just this very flirtatious, oh, we should call it off then. Thank God we found out in time. Thank God. Yeah, just really charming kind of banter, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And then they kind of end it saying that they're curious to see how this experiment turns out. And as a viewer, you're kind of like, oh, this relationship's continuing. There's finally something that's not resetting at the end of the episode. And you are kind of curious, like, what does this mean going forward where we've suddenly got these two characters that are in a relationship? Yeah, it's an interesting point because uh, Voyage is kind of famous for just smashing that reset button at the end of an episode, whatever yeah. has happened to the various characters. But yeah, this is one, so it actually, it sticks out when something does look like it's going to be staying and you kind of, like, oh my God, wow, it's kind of a, a kind of a, a significant moment when you do have those times when something is going to be a permanent change, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we do have, <laughs> we, we do have Janeway's um, log where she does kind of point out that the Doctor did manage to reverse all of the conditions and effects. Uh, it, it would have also been interesting to have seen perhaps Chakotay still as an old man, even just for a couple more episodes, or perhaps for uh, Neelix to be permanently changed, and maybe they could have just changed his design into something else slightly. You know, just yeah. something to be kind of like, yeah. you know, there have been some lasting ramifications for some of the crew. But Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very abrupt how, so there is yeah. the mashing the reset button to a, a, an extent, isn't there, yeah. at the end here. Um, it's similar to the Deadly Years, um, where you yeah. know Kirk take, takes the the um the cure and he's like fine you know seconds later and everybody else presumably gets it um, and yeah <laughs> you would think as well that there'd be some like trauma from this in some ways particularly we don't know what what are the reflections other people got that might have been very harrowing for them but yeah again like Voyager does have a bit of a habit of just smashing that reset button and to that extent we 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 get that but it's not I don't find it too annoying um, in this. No. So, and it makes sense for them to, you know, to they, they already established there was a way that they could reverse this earlier in the episode. So it's feasible they were able to do it at the end, you know, fairly quickly, um, perhaps. Yeah, that's but fair. yeah, you're right. It would have been nice if there was some, and probably if this was made today, you know, where shows are a lot more confident of um, having residual move on through the next episode, perhaps you would have seen it if it was made today. But um, in those days, it was still very much a self-contained, individual episodes really um voyager especially so yeah it's to be expected i think 
Yeah, I think I think for me it's kind of like it, you wouldn't really want to have Chakotay permanently in that state where you're just dealing with a first officer who's got arthritis. But it would have been a lot more interesting for his character to have to be a case of mentally he's fine. Uh, he can still be a first officer, but he is suddenly having to deal with the fact that he has arthritis and he's got all these other afflictions that are going on consistent with old age yeah. and just trying to battle that. That could have been quite an interesting character story for them to have done had they not hit that reset button. But, you know, yeah. the 90s was what the 90s was. But yes. I, I also felt that with the relationship between Paris and Torres, being somewhat out of the blue, even though there'd been some stuff leading up to it, but, it, it, but like it, when it started off, it was like an instant, like this is very sudden there into their relationship. It was yeah. far better than the sudden relationship that Chakotay and Seven had that just pops yeah, up at the end of season seven. Picard and Crusher, um, which was, you know, kind of was alluded to throughout the series, but then very abruptly they're in a relationship in the last episode. So there'd be no kind of, you know, payoff from that. Um, mm. I probably didn't think they would have they, the captain should be in a relationship. I think is probably what what happened there. It's it's probably out of principal cast members, you know, having a relationship. It's probably the best example. I don't think there is really a, a, another. Well, um, Dax and Worf is pretty good. Mm. Um, but but th but this is even that felt a little bit abrupt in some ways. Uh, but this is very very natural and like goes at a, a believable pace. And ultimately goes all the way through, you know, to them having a baby by the last episode. So you get the full kind of, you know, um, their courtship and, you know, having a baby all, all contained within this series, which is, and it was, it, it was, the actors were great. Um, it was very believable and very charming. And you, you were happy for them as well, for their characters, because mm -hmm. they were kind of the, the ones that had probably the toughest deal, really, coming into the first episode. Um, and you feel good. They kind of deserve to, to have found each other, I think, is probably the, the way I'd put it, yeah. Yeah. I also thought that the aliens were, in some regards, similar to the Vidians, who, and we, we've left their space a long time ago. Um, so it's yes. nice to have something a little bit more kind of akin to that. But they're also very different to the Vidians, because at least the Vidians are very kind of, they're, they're straight in, straight out, like no hiding what they're doing. Um, whereas you've got these more secretive, you know, stealthy kind of people who are almost a little bit more unethical. Like at least the Vidians are just doing things to survive. Whereas these are just kind of like, oh, we're just doing these experimentations with no care for the victims, just in yeah. the hopes that we'll get more medical knowledge. Yeah, I think with the Vidians as well, the, the, their, methods, their methods were a lot more hor horrifying as well. Like yeah. literally like, you know, extracting organs from, from you, you know. Um, with a with a weapon that they used to 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 do it was kind of kind of really like like an awful yeah. thing to contemplate, um, and they were really super advanced technology wise. They were a genuine threat to Voyager. I mean, these guys were as well, but um, they're not so yeah, lot, like you say, not so in your face with it. So weirdly, you know, they're not kind of quite, quite as scary as as, as the Vidians were. Yeah, um, it's how they almost justify their methods as being benign, but yeah. It's also probably more invasive. Yeah. Especially as they're, they're changing even just how people react and their interactions and stuff. Like you saw just how much Janeway was pushed. The fact that we've, we've ended up with a relationship which may not have happened. And in hindsight, it's for a good reason that they did get together. But 
again, it's they've influenced the crew quite heavily with their experimentation. Yeah, I mean, their 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 medical um, ethics are, are, are abhorrent, really. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it'd be interesting to see if there's if they've got to this point where they're completely ambivalent to whether they're harming other species um, as a result of a huge disaster on their planet. Um, and the ends justify the means a little bit, perhaps. Is mm. some, well, they might might just like, you know, they just like this method of doing it. There's no particular um, need to do it this way. It's just what they've established, and it's what it, it's what they do. I mean, I guess that's me hoping that there's some redeeming thing with this species that perhaps they have had huge disasters and they've just had to do this in a desperation attempt to try and help their own species with from whatever awful things that they go through, but. I don't get that impression from their demeanor. Um, you know, the episode they're very kind of laid back and like deadpan about about the whole situation. And it actually, there are shades of um, um, where silence has lease as well, uh, with you know the crew effectively being expe- experimented on against their will to the point where many could die. And it also mm. makes you think that Janeway potentially could have just set the self destruct on, um, and that might have accomplished the same thing. Um, but I think the headcanon, and it's not so much headcanon way of getting out of that, is Janeway, her, you know, her, like, reasoning was completely, completely gone. You know, she had all of her sense of doing things in a sensible, considered manner were destroyed by the experiments that were happening to her and her desperation and her levels of, you know, God knows what, you know, adrenaline and everything. So she would be more inclined to perform something more, more, more desperate and more elaborate um Plus, and and yeah she she did also feel that there'd be a one in ten chance of them at least getting through it with uh yeah. self-destruct there's a zero out of ten chance of getting through it well yeah i mean you would hope that when you hit the last 10 seconds they would they would make a run for it and then you could turn off the um the self-destruct that's not guaranteed of course but it's I don't know. Are the, are the odds are the odds better in, it, in what hoping they'll bugger off when you get to ten seconds, or are the odds better at flying into a dangerous star? Mm. I don't know. Though. Probably the self destruct odds potentially. Um, but like I said, I think you could just say that Janeway's judgment was massively impaired at that point, yeah. so she just went for, and she just witnessed one of her crew dying. It was interesting that they killed that crew member. I mean, I think that was the aliens' way of saying, "Look, if you keep like messing us around." This is going to happen, but in yeah. the end, that backfired because it just forced Janeway to uh, into a desperation move, um, which resulted in some of their one of their ships being destroyed and potentially some of their crew killed. Well, yeah, that were assuming they're fully manned, yeah, and one ship barely getting away. So, yeah, it it, it was just um, Janeway's judgment was massively impaired, and that was that's what she did as, as a result of that, and she got away with it. It worked, and you know what? It it, it felt good. You, you felt really happy, triumphant, and those aliens were just complete, com, complete and utter. You know, oh, I don't want to swear, but they were, they were really go on, annoying. Go, go on, um, go on. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and yeah, you you kind of the ends justified the means a little bit with what Jamie had, yeah. had, had to do at the end. Um, I think, yeah, yeah, I agree, and. When I was looking at this episode as well on Memory Alpha, there was a couple of things that came up. Because like with you saying about the, the, the crew member who died, something that comes up in beta canon, so that we're, when we're talking that, we're talking you know a lot of the novelizations and things, a lot of books that have been written. And there's a Section 31 novel called Shadow 
but apparently establishes her as being Ensign Roberta Luke. And so that's fine. The bit that I really don't like, which is a problem that I have with some novels that makes me just not even want to bother reading them, is that she was apparently a Section 31 operative assigned to Voyager in order to gather information on my key activities. And, right. and, and she's the one that died. Yeah, and I'm just thinking like, ugh, really? A Section 31 operative on board Voyager? It's just... That's a I'm glad yeah. that we didn't get Section 31 in Voyager. In DS9, fantastic, great. Voyager, I'm, I'm glad that <laughs> they, they didn't yeah. try and sneak any of those in. Um, I could see why the writer would do it, though, because they would probably think that, you know, the, the, the seventh Section 31 might be involved in, you know, trying to defeat the Marquis or to, you know, eradicate them. So I could see yeah. they probably would take that and think, oh, that probably might mean they'd put someone on Voyager because that was an, a Marquis-related mission. But, yeah, um, I'm happy for her just to be a random ensign that died, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> same, same. Yeah. Um, we, we didn't get to see her at all before. All we got to see was her dying. So it's not like some of the other characters we talked about where we're like, oh, we wish we got to see more. It's like, we saw enough. <laughs> no, it's, it's not like like latent image where we actually had a character that was developed for that episode and you kind of grew mm. to like them and then they ended up dying. Um, yeah. But I, need, I think probably my final point on it, on the episode, um, as, I, as I say, really brilliant um, episode. Um, I think it's the best example of crew being experimented on episode probably in star trek um mm. schisms is good and uh, west silence's lease is also good but i think this is the best example uh, but i think um it's a really good character development for seven of nine probably the first real big you know obviously there was like um scorpion part two and then we had the gift straight after but um this is a really good episode where we show what value she can provide to the crew and actually her being a borg basically was the reason why they were able to work out what was happening to them sooner mm. rather than later um a lot more people could have died you know by the time they were able to work that stuff out themselves yeah um so it really shows you know what an asset seven of nine is now she's kind of invaluable really uh, mm. i think she's proved that um in this episode and i think at this point you know watching her having only had like you know six episodes before this i think you're already uh, you it's clear that she'd be super important uh to the crew and um, just Jerry Ryan's performance is just brilliant. And I'm, I'm just, you know, I always say Seven of Nine's great, but she's just a brilliant, a brilliant character. And I think it's these sort of episodes that she really shines in. Yeah, um, yeah so a great Seven of Nine episode as well. Yeah, I, I, I do like at the beginning when she is having that argument with, uh, with Torres in the Jeffrey's Tube. And Torres has kind of pointed out, yeah, you, you don't even have apologies in the collective. And at the end of it, she does say, I'm sorry. And... Yeah, the way yeah. that it's delivered is delivered by somebody who's never had to apologize ever before and isn't yeah. really sure how to do it. But you can tell that in her own way, it is genuine and it's her trying to push herself forward and to, and to make some adjustments. And, uh, and that just speaks to everything that you've just said. So, Yeah, it shows a willingness to you know, try and integrate with the crew because she knows this is probably going to be her home now. Um, so another little great even though it's quite it's kind of small when you probably pass it by watching it another little nugget of character character development for seven of nine so yeah it's really important on several levels for her um well that wraps up this episode of long range census so if you have any thoughts comments or questions for us let us know by emailing us at longrangecensors at icloud.com and of course you can follow us on twitter at at star trek lrs 
If you enjoy the show and you would like to help support us, you can join people like Jennifer by subscribing to us via Patreon. You'll gain access to our private Discord channel. You'll be able to vote on future content you'd like to hear us discuss and listen to our new movie commentary we recently released of Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. In addition, we recently made an announcement over on Twitter about our new companion series, Subspace Live, a live show on our private Discord where you'll be able to hang out with us as we discuss all of the fantastic new Star Trek shows that are currently airing or in development. Our first live event begins this Thursday, August 19th, 2021 at 6pm British Standard Time which is 2 p.m. Atlantic, and hopefully you can convert it to your own time zone from there. This is exclusive to our Patreon subscribers, and if you miss it, don't worry, as we'll have a recording of it available for you to download on your Patreon feed. We're really excited about Subspace Live and look forward to seeing you there. Find out how you can join to get these exclusive benefits and more by visiting patreon.com forward slash longrangesensors. But as always, another amazing way to help support the show is to let others know about it. Telling a friend, sharing on social media, or tagging people's DNA with our web address goes a really long way to help us grow the show. Uh, my name is Trev, and you can follow me at Henry Jones Jr. on Twitter. Uh, if you enjoy modern and retro video games, you can even check out my other podcast, Console Shock, which you can find on all good participating podcast apps and also at consoleshock.net. Alistair, where can people find you? Well, you can follow me at uh, Alistair McFly on Twitter and find everything else that I do online over at alistairmcfly.com, which also includes links to my Twitch streams, where you can watch me play games over at twitch.tv slash McFly. You've been listening to Long Range Sensors, where we always avoid accidentally ejecting our warp core. Cool.